Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. So before we start, Susan McKee reminded me that last year we took the opportunity before the school year to pray for our kids and our schools and our teachers, uh, not just public schools, private schools, Christian schools, homeschooling, all of the above, and we want to do that this morning. So uh, let's do that briefly as we start our service. We'll open up in prayer, specifically praying for all of the kids who just started school this last month. Uh, I was away, as you know, last week, so uh, we didn't get to it, but I'm sure the Lord will hear our prayers. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful morning. Uh, we, we appreciate the rain, and we appreciate when it stops. And so we're grateful today for what looks like a beautiful day. We're thankful for our time of worship and our fellowship and the opportunity to minister to our children and to be ministered to by your word. But we lift up now our children, all of the children. There's so many children in this church, and uh, we certainly pray that you'd bless them through the Sunday school and the activities like Calvary Kids that's happening this week on Wednesday and all of the things that we do to, to make their time here special. But they spend so much time, whether it be homeschooling or private school or even public school, they spend so much time out there, and especially in the public schools, there's, there's so much influence that is contrary to our beliefs, really just an assault on our values. So we pray that you would just put a hedge of protection first about, uh, around and, uh, and about those who uh, are attending those, those public schools, but all the children. May they have a wonderful school year. May they learn, whether they're learning at home or, or in, in a place that they go to every day, may they learn the things they need to learn to be successful and prosperous in life, May you protect them and keep them. We also pray for our teachers. There are many teachers here who work in the schools and many moms who homeschool, even dads who homeschool. And so we ask that you would just anoint this year, that this year would be a blessing to them and that you would protect them and keep them safe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I'd like to open up with a scripture from Isaiah before we get into Genesis. And I, in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 1, Isaiah says this. He says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Now that is a description of what sin does in our lives and to our lives. And when we consider the separation that happened in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, there was an immediate separation. There was an immediate distance. And it caused the man and the woman to hide from God. The only reason we ever have a tendency or a desire to hide from God is because we're ashamed. We're ashamed of our behavior. We're ashamed of our sin, our rebellion. And that's exactly what we see. And it was two weeks ago, so I, I want to go back and just recap two verses here. In verses 7 and 8 of Genesis 3, we had read, again, two weeks ago, 
that after they disobeyed God and ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it says that then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And so getting us back into the account as we're going to look at the confrontation of sin today. We looked at uh, last time we looked at the deception of sin. The confrontation of sin. Sin needs to be confronted. If not confronted in your life, you will forever hide from God. And if not confessed, you'll be forever separated from God. So how we respond to our shame, how we respond to our sin nature is on us. That's not on God. The truth of God's word teaches us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because our parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, we have inherited, as we'll see, a sin nature. That is a proclivity to sin. We inherited that from our DNA, from our parents. And because we have that ability, even proclivity or desire to sin, we need to acknowledge that. We need to confront sin. Now, confronting sin is not the same thing as paying for your sins. Jesus Christ paid the price for sins on the cross. Amen? He died on the cross for our sins. And he rose again on the third day. And he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. And that's one of the truths we commemorate when we receive communion on the first Sunday of the month. And we will this morning. But how we confront sin, that's what we want to talk about today. So as we get into verses 9, and we'll read through verse 13, I want you to see what the scripture says and how God approached the man and the woman while they were hiding. In verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, now he begins to curse the serpent, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. We're not going to look at the consequences or, or the, the curse of sin until next week. I just want to see today if we can take the time to think through how we should confront sin. Now, first, it's important to note that despite what we read here and what you might think, the man and the woman did confess their sin. I think we forget that. It's not as if they didn't. They didn't deny it. Not in the least. And I think one of the significant differences you'll find in the way people respond to being convicted of sin, some people will try to hide and remain hidden from God. Some people will run from God. Some people will deny their sin nature. I'm not a sinner. I can do whatever I want. There is no God. And then there are those that confess their sin. Every single Christian here today confessed their sin. Their sin nature 
And maybe not each and every individual sin, but every Christian, every born-again believer here, acknowledge before God that they're a sinner. Amen? And remember that God is going to do a redemptive work, starting in the garden, but leading up until the time that Jesus died on the cross. God's redemptive work was planned all along, but the effectiveness of that work, the power of that work, cannot be realized in our lives unless we confess our sin. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's what John taught us in 1 John. So understand, until you confront your sin, there is no forgiveness of sin. But if you confess your sins, you will be forgiven. So why would somebody not confess their sin? It's pride, and God resists the proud. He exalts the humble. He lifts up the person who admits they're wrong. So when we think about confrontation, we look at what first caused that confrontation, and it was this, God's word, really. The Lord God called to the man that he might come out of hiding. That's exactly what happened. He was hiding, and the Lord God called to the man to come out of hiding. That is what happens when the word of God is taught. It calls to the heart of a man or a woman and calls them to come out of hiding. Yes, you feel shame. Yes, you are, excuse me for saying it this way, naked before God, because God sees all of our failures and our sins. But you can sew together fig leaves to try to cover your shame, which is man's poor attempt at trying to fix himself. Uh, By the way, I I don't know this for a fact, but I hear that fig leaves are very itchy. So probably not a good idea to want to cover yourself with fig leaves. But what fig leaves represent is a religious experience. There are many religious experiences in various different religions, and even within Christianity, that ultimately attempt to cover our shame. They are never effective we'll see that God will slay animals and cover them with the, with the skins of animals. A blood sacrifice was necessary to cover them, and we'll get to that in future studies. But understand, right now, only the blood of Jesus Christ can cover your sin. In the Old Testament, the word atonement means to cover, and it was the blood of bulls and goats and animals that covered sin. In the New Testament, it means to do away with sin. It's a different word, it's a different language, but it means something different. So you can cover your sin, or you can do away with your sin. Anyone here want their sin done away with? Well, here's the good news. In Jesus Christ, that's exactly what you have experienced as a Christian, and can experience if you come to him. Amen? So look at it this way. This is a picture, but it's also a truth. It's also what happened. The Lord obviously knew where Adam was hiding. He knew why he was hiding, but he asked the question anyway. God knows what you're going through today, but he'll still probe your heart. The Holy Spirit will still ask you questions. Not because God doesn't know the answers, but because you don't know the answers. Have you ever asked a child a question that you knew the answer to? Probably 90% of the questions you ask your children or your grandchildren, you already know the answer to. You don't ask them to find things out. You ask them to teach them things. So that's what we see here. His purpose in calling Adam was that he might respond of his own free will. Many are called, but few are chosen. God calls to all of us to come out of hiding, but some remain hidden, separated from God because of their sin. 
Now, the Lord always calls to us by his grace that we might respond to him. Remember, they were sinners. Remember that they had rebelled against God. They had disobeyed God. God told them the consequences, but does God hide from them? No, they hide from God. God seeks them out in their shame, in their nakedness, because that's the loving God we serve. He's a gracious God who seeks us in our shame and in our sin. We need only respond. This is a very important truth. I'm going to say it twice. Man's sin does not prevent God from seeking to save him. Man's sin does not prevent God from seeking to save him. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God seeks sinners. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. Can I hear an amen? See God as not angry. See God as loving and lovingly seeking that individual, those individuals that he loved. He doesn't force them or us to respond even when it's in our best interest. Did you notice that? He doesn't force anyone to do anything. And the man responds in verse 10, and he says, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now, the man responded truthfully. There is no lie or deception or attempt to conceal at all. Understand that. It's not like he was hiding under the bed and, you know, God found him. No, he was called out of hiding by God's grace. And the man truthfully responded to God's call. First of all, he recognized the sound of God's presence in the garden. He was familiar with that. The sound of God he was familiar with. The presence of God he had known in a way that we have never known as men and women in a truthful way, in an open way, in a sincere way, in an innocent way, in a perfect way. Now this presence of God, I believe, was the pre-incarnate Son of God, that is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, second member of the Trinity. I do believe that, not in human flesh, for he had not taken on flesh yet, but in human form, so that he could interact and relate with his creation. You see, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, many, many times, God takes a human form to interact with his people, sometimes referred to as the angel of the Lord or the messenger of Jehovah. This is, I think, I believe, a Theophanies or a Christophanies, a manifestation of God in a way that we can be in his presence. For to be in the presence of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the flesh would destroy us. The scripture tells us we would die. I believe we would just disintegrate. So, but so that God can seek us and relate to us, he takes on human form. This happens in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, he takes on human flesh, becomes one of us. Do you see? I hope you're not missing this today. The heart of God seeking man. That's the message here. It's not man hiding from God. It's God seeking man who's hiding. It's so important to see it this way. Now, God had appeared for fellowship, communion, communication with them. He wanted to spend time with them. God wants to spend time with you in the same way, and your sin will not prevent that. You know something? The Holy Spirit works in a number of ways, and even before you give your life to Christ, the Holy Spirit is with you. He's he's reaching out to you. He's seeking to have a relationship with you. So even before you confess your sin, God is seeking you. What does that say? 
Many Christians feel that their sin separates them from God, and yet God sought you when you were still a sinner. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. So understand something. There's nothing about you or your life, your shame, your sin, your iniquity, that would prevent God from seeking you. Why is that so important? Because many Christians confess their sins, and then they hide from God. Because they feel... And again, it's not fact, it's feel. They feel that they've disappointed God. And therefore, they don't appeal to God's grace. They look at the law of God and they make a decision. They're not worthy to be in the presence of God. So I've talked to people over the years and someone will say, well, pastor, I would have been in church, but I have so much sin in my life. That's the person who's saved but confused. Because they don't realize that's the time when you have that kind of sin in your life, when you're struggling, when you need to draw nearer to God. The scripture says, come near to me and I will draw near to you. Amen? See, I'm excited about the message of grace. Because it welcomes a sinner like me into God's presence to enjoy the sweet fellowship of God despite my sin. That is exactly what we see here. Now, Adam was afraid because of his own shame, his own insecurity, By the way, this is the first time in his life he had ever been afraid. Think about that. First time he'd ever been afraid. And what was he afraid of? He was afraid of God. It's the first time he had ever hid from God. And so as Isaiah said, and we opened with the scripture, your sins have separated you from God. But when you read that scripture, it's, it's tempting to read that scripture and think that God is hiding from you, that God has separated himself from you. That's not exactly what happens You have separated yourself from God because of your sin. Your sin has separated you from God. But wait a minute. You can confess your sins and draw near to God. So even under the old covenant, you could do that through animal sacrifice. So if you feel separated from God today, don't put that on him. That is squarely on your shoulders. It is because you are hiding from God, because you are separating, because you are afraid of God, not because God doesn't love you. Now, he explains his reason. The man does. He explains his reason for hiding from the presence of God. First of all, he mentions that he's naked. Now, I don't think it's so much because God didn't know what he looked like without clothes. I think it's because he felt the shame of his sin. Now, here's the thing. There is a shame that's associated with nudity, with with, with being naked before others and before uh, God. There's a shame. And some have suggested that it is an artificial inhibition of society. There are some who will tell you, well, we shouldn't be ashamed of our bodies. And I agree, we should not be ashamed of our bodies. But there's modesty. We talked about this recently. Many will tell you that's, it's something that was put on us by the, you know, the, the Puritans or, or very religious people or the church imposed on us this idea of being modest or shame, ashamed of being naked. Uh, that is, is not true. This shame, the source of this shame, is the awareness of sin. See, you're aware of who you really are, and so you seek to cover yourself. And because we are sinners and we confess that, You all got dressed today. Thank you very much. And that's a good thing. We're not ashamed of our bodies, but because we know who we really are, the vestige of sin in our lives, because here's the thing, you're saved, but you're a saved sinner, and you're still sinning. There will come a day when you will no longer be sinning, but it won't happen in the flesh. So we cover our flesh because our flesh is fallen. 
Do you understand that? We cover our flesh because our flesh is falling. It's an acknowledgement of sin. So shame has as its source the awareness of sin. And by the way, this shame is only lost in a person's heart when their conscience is hardened to sin. So when someone doesn't recognize sin in their lives, and they no longer have an awareness of their sin nature, they tend to be very immodest, perverse, vulgar. And I don't want to bring those things to your mind, but we often see people marching and standing up for foul things, and they oftentimes disrobe in order to bring attention to themselves. Why is that? They have lost the consciousness or awareness of sin to, to, to a great degree, not completely, but to a great degree. Their consciences have been seared as with a hot iron, Paul says. So rather than it being some artificial inhibition, modesty, as I like to call it, not shame, but modesty is actually an awareness of your sin nature. Don't let anyone tell you that, you know, to be truly free before God, you shouldn't have any modesty or or, or shame. No, 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 not at all. There will come a day when we can stand before God without shame in our flesh. But that day is not today. So clothing, by the way, is even worn in heaven. Did you know that? If you look at the book of Revelation, people are clothed. And, And at that point, people are forgiven, and yet there's an awareness. And by the way, that clothing is described as fine linen. Now, those, those are metaphors. Those are things that represent something we can't even begin to understand. But the point that clothing is the fine linen of the saints, the righteousness of God imputed to us, we're clothed in God's righteousness, sends the subtle, maybe not so subtle message that you must be clothed with Jesus Christ in order to be open before God. Can I hear an amen? There's so much here, and it's all evangelical. This is all gospel preaching. It's not just the account that you're so familiar with. And so I'm taking a little bit of a U-turn today and looking over the scripture and I'm, I'm looking at what's really going on here, not just what's going on. I could read that and you'd understand it in a minute. I'm looking a little bit deeper. I'm looking to see what is really going on. That's what we're trying to ascertain today or understand. Now, what the man did is he truthfully responded to the Lord's questions. There were two questions. Look at verse 11. And the man said, he said, Who told you, I'm sorry, uh, God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Notice the Lord asks two straightforward questions. Who told you you were naked? That is, who told you to be ashamed, right? And have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? You know God knows the answer to these questions, right? You know that. That's not why he's asking them. But he wants him to confess his sin. God wants him to confess his sin, so he questions him about his shame. You know, many times religion through the centuries has done this. Question you about your shame or make you go into a little phone booth and confess them. The problem with that is that's bringing up shameful things in an attempt to fix them. Do you know that God brings up your shame? He questions you about your sin and your shame. He brings it to the forefront. Do you know why he does that? So he can cover you. So he can forgive you and purify you. It is so important. I've seen Christians do this. They point out others' sin. That's the serpent speaking. Listen. 
God doesn't point out our sin for that reason. He does, but for a different reason. He points out our sin. He brings attention to it so he can solve our problems, so that he can draw us in. So when God asks you, maybe the Holy Spirit brings it to your attention as we're reading the word, uh, that there is sin in your life. Or you become aware as you're reading God's word, you know, I do that. I'm a sinner. God isn't condemning you. He's convicting you, but he's not condemning you. The the condemnation is not from him. That's self-condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set us free from the law of sin and death. Romans 8.1. Right? So we understand there is no condemnation if you respond appropriately. But there needs to be confession. And there needs to be communion with God. Conviction. So he wants him to confess his sin. That's why we preach the truth of God's word. We don't do it to condemn people. And we've heard way too much of that in the church. Like they bring up sins to make people feel bad. That's going to motivate you to repent. No, it's going to motivate you to hide. When someone condemns you, they were already condemned, by the way, man and woman. That's why they were hiding. When someone condemns you, when another Christian comes or a pastor comes and points the finger at you and condemns you, all that you can do is hide. But when someone brings the conviction of the Holy Spirit and you confess your sins, they can't hide any longer. There's no need to hide. And that's a beautiful truth. He also wants, God wants the man to admit his rebellion, so he questions him about his faithfulness. Have you eaten? Have you done what I told you not to do? There's a questioning there about this man's faithfulness. So there's a confession of sin and an admission of rebellion. And these are the two things that must happen if you're going to have a relationship with God. You need to confess your sin and admit that you rebelled against God. And so when we do that, that opens up the door for us to no longer hide from God. God isn't hiding from us. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. You are the lost. But now you're found in Jesus Christ. Amen? Wonderful truth. This is great. I get to preach the gospel from Genesis 3. It is really, truly amazing to me. It's all right here, right? In the beginning, shortly after sin, actually immediately after sin, the gospel. Immediately after sin. God didn't take a week to think about it. Immediately, God has a plan for restoration. And he has that plan for you today. Now, the man answers the Lord's questions with the absolute truth. I have often heard this passage taught in this way, that he's trying to shift the blame to the woman or even to God. You can read it that way. You can read this and say, well, maybe Adam was saying if God hadn't put the woman there, he may not have sinned. You may see that, and it may be true. You could say if the woman hadn't given him the fruit, he may not have sinned. And so many times I've heard pastors talk about the first thing that he did was blame shift. I actually don't agree. I mean, it's true. There's everything that he said was true. Now, if he was blame shifting, I wouldn't know, but I know this. What he said is the absolute truth. And I believe it's more likely that he's simply telling the Lord the details of his sins, which is what you and I need to do when we confess. We need to admit what happened. So is it wrong to say, well, you know, I got involved in this sin or that relationship. 
with this woman or with this man or I did this or did that. No, that, you want to openly confess those things before God. And that's all Adam is really doing. So I don't fault him for doing that. After all, what he said wasn't a lie. It wasn't deceptive. He wasn't really shifting the blame, I think, at all. I think he was taking responsibility. I mean, after all, look at what, it, what, what, what we read here. In the end, he does take full responsibility by saying, I ate it. See, if you had read this, and it, and it kind of ended in this way, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, then that's blame shifting. But if then you go on to say, and I ate it, that's taking full responsibility for your sin. You hear what I'm saying? I, I, that's what I see. Again, I wasn't there. I don't know for sure, but that's what I see. Full responsibility for his actions. After all, could there have been a restoration to the relationship in any other way? If he hadn't taken responsibility, if she hadn't taken responsibility, could there have been a restoration to the communion that God had with them? See, there had to be confession. There had to be an admission of sin. And there was. There was. He doesn't even suggest he was deceived into doing this. He doesn't even say so. Because he wasn't. He chose to do this, as we saw two weeks ago. And then the woman. The woman responded truthfully to the Lord's question as well. Everything she says is true. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Is that not true? It's absolutely true. The Bible says it's true. The serpent did deceive her. She allowed herself to be deceived, but he deceived her, and we know who the serpent is. But she says, again, she ends it with, and I ate. That's taking responsibility for your sin. Now, the Lord asks her to explain why, why. Notice, it's what is this you have done is more of a why have you done this. The question is more about why. Why would you do this? And this is the why, and it's the truth. Because he wants her to explain why she chose to do such a thing. Why did she intentionally give the man the fruit? Why did she do this? He wants her to realize the significance of her rebellion. Now, again, I don't know what would have happened, and I don't think it's important to postulate or think through what would have happened if Eve was deceived, but Adam didn't rebel against God. I've heard all kinds of stories made up about what would have happened, but nobody knows. It's kind of like thinking about, you know, what would have happened if the election results were different? Well, they, they weren't. What happened, happened. You keep looking back. Many people keep looking back in our country and say, oh, if only, if only, if only. What is, is. And that's all I can say. So, I don't encourage you to look back. I encourage you to recognize what is, and what happened was the woman was deceived and the man rebelled. Two different situations. The woman was deceived, and she admits that. Now, the woman answers the Lord's question with the absolute truth. I don't believe she's shifting the blame, but some people look at this and feel that she's blaming the serpent for her deception. It's true that the serpent deceived her. But let me ask you a question. If someone deceived you, how far are you going to get on blaming them? How is that going to do anything for you? See, one of the best things you can do when you're deceived is admit, I was deceived. I ate it. I made the choice. It's on me. Sometimes we say, my bad. I remember the first time I put that in an email. It's many, many years ago. It, was, it sort of became a popular thing to say. And I kind of put out an email. It was a business email, kind of informal. It wasn't a formal document. 
But I just said, my bad, and my boss called me on it. She literally called me. She was a little bit more formal than most. She's like, that's not appropriate jargon. And I didn't say, oh, my bad. Okay. She could have, say again, some people see this, been saying if God hadn't put the serpent there, she may not have sinned. But again, I don't think so. I mean, if the serpent hadn't deceived her, she may not have sinned is kind of a lame argument. And again, that doesn't get you closer to God by making excuses. I actually don't see an excuse here. I see the absolute truth. It's more likely she's simply telling the Lord the details of her sin, which is exactly what you need to do to be saved. Everything she recounted about the serpent was true. In the end, she does take full responsibility as well by saying, I ate. I did it. She does now realize that she was deceived by the serpent. You know, there's a moment when you realize you were deceived. And it's usually a sad moment. If you were truly deceived, you didn't think so until a certain point, right? And then you look at the bill or you, you, you figure out what you just signed and you think, don't you hate that feeling? I, I, that is one of the most difficult things for me as a person, just to make a mistake like that, to feel that I was a fool. You know, I remember um, I'm a big Bugs Bunny fan, okay? When Bugs would realize that he had been fooled, his head would transform into a donkey. And I'm not going to use the other word. And, and it would just for a moment, and he would realize, boy, am I a... And it's like, that feeling is very hard for me to process. I don't know about you. Some people get over it. I don't. I tend to need like a week to forgive myself. God actually is not happy when we approach things like that. It would be better to say, I blew it. I was deceived and move on. I'll let you know how I do with that because I've never really been able to get over it that quickly. I used to have a friend who, when something went wrong... He used to say, I'm not over it. I'm not over it. And then like a few minutes later, he goes, I'm almost over it. (laughs) And then he would go, okay, I'm over it. And 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 just kind of, he would process it very quickly. And I think, man, I wish I could get over things that quickly. The woman did, actually. She she did get over it. She realized, I was deceived. I ate it. It's on me. My bad. It's clear that she had no idea who the serpent actually was. And I think we talked about this two weeks ago. That's one of the biggest problems, I think, for us. We never really understand who the serpent really is. So when the politician is speaking or the person, the protesters yelling or screaming or we see something online or in the news, we so tend to focus on the serpent and not the one speaking through the serpent. You'd be a whole lot better off if you recognized who the serpent is. You do realize who the serpent is, right? The ancient serpent is the great dragon. He's called the devil or Satan. And we'll see now that the serpent was cursed for his deception of the woman. By the way, and we read it, we read it actually in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now there's two things there, verse 14 and verse 15. Let's look at verse 14. The ancient serpent, the great dragon, as the book of Revelation calls him in chapter 12 and chapter 20, called the devil, the accuser, 
the deceiver or Satan, the adversary. We know who was using the serpent, but we don't always focus in on who the serpent is using, who the devil is using. We don't always focus in on who's really behind the words. And as Dana Carvey famously said, as the church lady on SNL when you could watch it, could it be Satan? You know, one of the things I've realized over the years is that's Satan's greatest power. To not allow you to be aware that it's him. I can't remember who I read it. It might have been C.S. Lewis. I can't remember at the moment. But it was something along the lines of Satan wants men to be a skeptic or a cynic or a magician or a wizard. Like he wants you to be overly obsessed with him or deny that he exists at all. And and the truth of it is, we understand there is a devil, but being obsessed with him or focused on him isn't our goal. We look to Jesus Christ, amen? But if you can't even recognize when the serpent is speaking that it's the voice of Satan, there's a problem. There's a problem, and the problem is you don't know how to recognize, not the voice of Satan, you don't know how to recognize the voice of God. Because when you know the truth, a lie shows up very quickly. But when you don't know the truth, a lie looks like the truth. We talked about this two weeks ago. Knowing the truth would have prevented their fall. Focusing on the truth, applying the truth, living the truth would have made all the difference in the world. So rather than focusing in on the wiles or the schemes of Satan, trying to figure out, could this be the devil? Could this be the devil? Best to look at the word of God. Know the word of God. Study the word of God. Meditate on the word of God. Memorize the word of God so that you can say it is written and recognize the voice of the serpent. So what we do here at church, we don't have this like little training class so much where we focus in on how to recognize the devil. We rather spend our time seeking God and his word because when you know God and you have a relationship with God and you know his word, you can see. You're not ignorant of the devil's schemes. That's the goal. That's how we approach this. Well, the Satan, this devil, the serpent, craftier, this serpent, than any of the wild animals. That's to say he wasn't just a wild animal. He wasn't just a reptile. He wasn't. It's possible that the serpent originally stood upright based on the curse that he could speak, distinguished him from the wild animals of creation, and that's why I don't believe it was just some snake. We often see the artwork, right? You have uh, Adam and Eve, and you have the tree, right? And And the serpent or the snake is coming down from the tree, right? And some have said, well, it used telepathy. Why would you come up with that? Where do you come up? Some of the stuff that people say. Anyway, all, all that I have to say about this is that the serpent probably was a dragon, Ooh, you Lord of the Rings folks out there just perked up. You just, oh, the Hobbit. Yeah, I know that. Probably a dragon. Else, why would they call him a dragon? Why in the visions is he figured as a dragon? When you think about it, what is a dragon without limbs and wings? So anyway, something to think about. Don't, Don't go out and write a book about it. Just something to think about. So Satan possessed and used the serpent's body specifically to deceive the woman. And God's curse fell first on the serpent as a perpetual reminder of the fall of man. That's the purpose. It's a perpetual reminder. Every time they see a snake, it's a perpetual reminder of the fall of man and Satan's role in it. 
Remember, they would have shame, and modesty would be important as a result of sin. But the serpent was cursed in a way that would remind us forever of the fall of mankind. All of the other animals were also placed under the curse of sin, lest you forget this. Think about it with me. Yes, there was a curse upon the serpent, but animals who had not sinned and were not dying, there was no death in the world before the fall of mankind, suddenly died over time. They started to die. They experienced the curse. Our planet experiences the curse of mankind. Mankind sins, and everything now, sin and death, enters the world. See, sin and the fall of mankind transformed our universe in a way that we can only guess at. It is amazing how much has changed, and all the fossil records that exist from the flood and afterwards, all of that just proves the truth that when sin came into the world, death came into the world. So looking backward, could there have been death before sin? There wasn't. So here's the truth. God created the heavens and the earth in six days and rested on the seventh. And then, after that, shortly after that, what happened? Sin entered the world through man's fall, and all of creation now suffers the consequences of sin, the curse of sin. The serpent, a little bit more, and in a way that's different, but all animals experienced it as well. Now, the serpent was cursed above the other animals. He would now glide on its belly, eating its prey directly off the ground. And that reminder, every time we see it, should say, yep, yep, Satan used the serpent. I don't know why he used the serpent. You could make a case. I mean, if you brought God to court, you could say, you you cursed the serpent, but the serpent was only used by the devil. Why was he used by the devil? I don't know. There's no book that explains that to me. But I know that the curse of sin comes into the lives of all creation, whether they deserve it or not. You understand that? Whether they deserve it or not. You did nothing to deserve being born a sinner. You know that, right? When you were born, you came out of your mother's womb, you had done nothing to deserve the title of being a sinner. Nothing. Nothing at all. But you're still a sinner, and you still suffer the consequences of sin. The wages of sin is death. You had the proclivity to sin, but you hadn't sinned. Who knows when a child actually starts to sin, but there does come a point where they make those choices for themselves, and they always sin. They always do. Something to think about. But the curse of sin and the work of the devil would be dealt with. And God tells us in verse 15 exactly how that would happen. It would be dealt with on the cross of Christ. I'm going to read it again. Notice. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed or your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There would be hatred between the woman and the serpent in this realm. There are women who like serpents and snakes. There are few, but there are. And there are men that are very afraid of them. I don't think that's what we're talking about here. The hatred that exists between a woman and the serpent or existed between that which was deceived or that that person that was deceived and the devil and, and the deception of sin really exists until this day. But it does explain why snakes and serpents in general are an object of dread and loathing. By the way, when you look at the description of the kingdom age in Isaiah 11.8, it says that, you know, the child can put his hand in the, the hole of the cobra, you know, and th- th- that's when God restores things when sin is out of the way and things can be set anew. But until then, I don't suggest anybody, anyone, get anywhere near, especially the ones that bite, but snakes 
I, I'm not afraid of them, but I can tell you right now, I'm not the person to have one as a pet. Okay? But that's between you and the Lord. Okay. <clears throat> there would be hatred between the seed of the woman and that of the serpent. Now, Jesus was born of the seed of the woman and not the seed of the man. Why do I know that? Because who is his father? God. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary. Jesus is the only man that could be described as the seed of the woman. The only one. Biologically, a woman produces no seed. The Bible always speaks only of the seed of men. This promised seed would have to be miraculously implanted, and indeed it was. And this child would therefore not inherit Adam's sin nature. So now we understand the mechanics of why Jesus could be born a human being from Mary, but without sin, the virgin birth. And this prophecy in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, clearly anticipates the future virgin birth of Christ. So we've seen the gospel message. We also see the gospel, the solution to our sin. Sin is introduced in chapter 3. Sin, at least predictively, prophetically, is solved, done away with and dealt with through the cross of Jesus Christ, which is predicted here in what I believe to be probably the very first evangelical gospel message of Jesus Christ. It's pointing to Jesus Christ. All other men are born of the seed of men and therefore of the serpent. But the prince of this world and worldly men will hate Jesus, as it says here, the Son of God, and they do. The seed of the woman would one day, <clears throat> as it says here, crush the head of the serpent. Make a public display of them openly on his cross, as Colossians tells us in chapter 2. He would destroy them. And we know that Jesus triumphed over Satan when he died for the sins of all mankind. Amen? That is a very weak amen. So I'm going to pretend I didn't hear that. Jesus triumphed over Satan when he died for the sins of all mankind. You should be excited about that. That's why we're here today. Now the devil did succeed in striking his heel, only to have his head crushed. You can, let me tell you something. You can strike my heel as it's being kicked at you. I don't suggest you do that. If I've learned anything in karate, it's how to kick, right? So you can strike my heel, go for it. When my heel's coming at you very fast and very quick, go ahead and strike it. We'll see what happens. You see, the truth is, yeah, he struck the heel of Jesus Christ. And actually, quite truthfully, his feet were pierced. His hands were pierced or his wrists. His side was pierced. He died on that cross. He did. He did. But the victory came through that death on the cross. Satan's head was crushed. Crushed. What a beautiful message of salvation in this verse 15. The cross is God's victorious answer to Satan's deception and man's sin. The cross is the answer. And Satan will be utterly destroyed at the end of time. We've studied that in Revelation 20. So this morning, as I asked the worship team to come up, that sets us up beautifully for communion. Because you see, what we're celebrating in communion is the striking of Jesus' heel, if you will, and the crushing of Satan's head. The striking of Jesus' heel, crucifixion, and the crushing of Satan's head, the resurrection. 
That's exactly what we read here in this scripture. And I took a little time today to kind of go through this briefly, more conversationally today, because I really want you to see that God loves you. I want you to understand that God seeks for you. And that as you respond to the gospel message, you're saved. Why would you hide from God? Why would you run from God? He's looking for you to help you, to save you, not to harm you or condemn you. And all you need to do is be honest with him and confess your sin, that you're a sinner, and acknowledge that his heel was struck, but that Satan's head was crushed through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, as we prepare to receive communion, these truths are so precious to us. Right there in chapter 3. After creation and the entering of sin in the world, salvation and the plan for salvation is revealed. And today we recognize that plan. We recognize your call. And we recognize our responsibility indeed. Our opportunity to confess our sins and be purified from all unrighteousness, forgiven through the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. May we understand that gospel, and for those here who maybe haven't responded, may they take this opportunity, and that's exactly what it is. We're told in the Scriptures to make the most of every opportunity. May they take that opportunity, this opportunity, to come forward to the communion table, but knowing that the cup and the bread represent the way of salvation. It's like them coming out from among the trees and their fig leaves and, 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 and looking to God for forgiveness and restoration. By coming forward and receiving these elements, we are acknowledging the truth that you died on the cross for our sins, rose again on the third day, defeated the works of Satan, displayed through his cross, openly defeating them, victory over the enemies of our souls, and specifically Satan. And that you're coming again to judge the living and the dead, and we do preach the Lord's death until you come to save us, Lord. Through this communion supper, we pray for your blessing on it in Jesus' name. Amen.